Okay, so now we return to our series. Um, the series is titled Truth Matters. Truth Matters. And for our guests, let me just give you some of the context of this, this particular series. The, the elders of Four Oaks have proposed a shift in the statement of faith that we stand on as a local church. It is a shift from the evangelical free statement of faith over to the gospel coalition statement of faith. And so what we're doing is we're taking the entire summer to study each article within this gospel coalition statement of faith. And I should probably mention this because I don't think I've, I've said this for a while, but the, though we are a church dedicated to expository preaching, this particular series is uh, admittedly and necessarily more of a topical series because statement of faiths are topical documents. So I thank you for your understanding on that. I also want to say, I mean, I was so glad Josh said that this morning, just how much we, we were able to express our thanks to God for you uh, at this retreat we were at. We were able to pour out our hearts on your behalf. We were able to express God to God our gratitude for the privilege, and it is a privilege to serve this local church. We love you, and we're so glad that you're part of this, and we're so glad that you're part of this series as well, and that we're doing this together. So today, we arrive at Article 10, Article 10, and I'm going to read that to you in just a second, but you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And to begin looking at verse 22, and while you do that, I'll read Article 10 to you from the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. This article is titled, The Kingdom of God. We believe that those who have been saved by the grace of God through union with Christ by faith and through regeneration by the Holy Spirit enter the kingdom of God and delight in the blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the inward transformation that awakens a desire to glorify, trust, and obey God, and the prospect of the glory yet to be revealed. Good works constitute indispensable evidence of saving grace. Living as salt in a world that is decaying and light in a world that is dark, believers should neither withdraw into seclusion from the world nor become indistinguishable from it. Rather, we are to do good to the city, for all the glory and honor of the nations is to be offered up to the living God. Recognizing whose created order this is, and because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, doing good to all, especially to those who belong to the household of God. The kingdom of God, already present but not yet fully realized, is the exercise of God's sovereignty in the world toward the, the eventual redemption of all creation. The kingdom of God is an invasive power that plunders Satan's dark kingdom and regenerates and renovates through repentance and faith the lives of individuals rescued from that kingdom. It therefore inevitably establishes a new community 
of human life together under God. Now, these articles are important because they are based upon the Bible. They're drawn from the Bible, but they are not the Bible. They don't have the authority of God's Word. They're simply based in God's Word. And so now let's turn to God's Word for a passage from God's Word that, will, that, that this article rests upon and is drawn from. And that's Matthew chapter 12. This is one of them. I'm going to read verses 22 through 29. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Let's pray. Lord, this this theme, this topic of the kingdom of God is so vast and so comprehensive, and we have such puny minds. And so we need your help this morning to be able to arrive at the heart of the matter, and I need your help to be able to serve these good people in getting us there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. June 6, 1944 was, of course, D-Day. And some regard D-Day as the largest invasion in the history of the world. Some of the more reflective among them call it the longest day. At 6.30 a.m. on that morning the first of 156,000 soldiers hit five beaches along the fortified coasts of France's Normandy region. The goal, of course, was to, was to break through Hitler's fabled Atlantic Wall, these fortified positions along the coast that were said to be impregnable. They were unable to be, to be crossed. And despite the the hell that was raining down on these soldiers, the artillery, the machine gun fire, they achieved that goal. And had the Nazis on that day pushed the Allied forces back, their victory would have undoubtedly been certain, at least that's what historians predict, their victory would have been certain, and I would have been preaching in German this morning rather than English. 
But because the Allied invasion was successful, their victory had, had not only taken place, but it, it effectively sealed the doom of Hitler's tyranny. It secured the victory. didn't complete the victory. It secured the victory. Now, some, as I said, have suggested that this was the greatest invasion of the history of the world, but they would be wrong. Because Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, delivers us to the greatest invasion in the history of the world. An invasion that I want to suggest to you would dwarf the significance of D-Day as we begin to understand it, because it was the invasion of the kingdom of God upon the earth. And so to get to that point, Matthew tells the story in chapter 12. He says, Jesus heals a man. Jesus heals a man who is demon-possessed, and so as a result of being healed and being exercised, the man's able to see, he's able to speak. And as usual, the people are amazed, the Pharisees are appalled, and the Pharisees bring this charge against Jesus. They say, he casts out demons because he serves their master. That's what he's all about. And so Jesus responds by announcing that an invasion has taken place. He says, If I served Satan, I wouldn't be casting out Satan because that would divide Satan's kingdom. And I want to read to you exactly what he said in verses 28 and 29. He said, quote, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, let me just set this text, this one we just read in the framework of of kind of biblical theology or, or biblical history. So going all the way back to the beginning where Adam and Eve are in the garden, Adam and Eve are given this charge. They are given the charge to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over every creature to exercise dominion over all God had made. But we learn in Genesis 3 that Satan robbed them of that dominion, and he sentenced creation to bondage. And he became, according to Jesus in John chapter 12, the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul calls him the God of this world. So the domain, Satan's domain, Satan's reign, was of this world. And so Jesus comes and he says, if I cast out Satan by the Spirit, the kingdom of God has come. Now, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, what he's talking about is the invasion of God's reign and kingly rule into this world. The Greek word for for the kingdom of God does not mean a place. It doesn't mean a geographical realm like the United Kingdom is a geographical place. This is a reign that starts in the spirit and moves from spiritual ultimately to physical in the new heavens and the new earth. But it starts unseen. And so Matthew chapter 12 is announcing not the complete restoration of God's kingdom, 
but the invasion of God's kingdom into this world, just, just like at Normandy. D-Day wasn't the end of the war. It, there were still many battles to take place. There were skirmishes that needed to go on, fights that needed to go on and take place as well. But it secured the end of the war, and it turned the tide for the Allied forces. So the kingdom of God is the future reign of God invading the present. It's the future reign of God invading the present through Jesus Christ for this purpose, to plunder his enemies and gather his subjects. So it's the kingdom of God is the future reign of God invading the present, present by Jesus Christ to plunder his enemies and gather his subject, subjects. So this exorcism takes place, and, and this exorcism means has a great significance. It's, it's much more than a demon being cast out. What Jesus says is it's, it's a symbol, it's signifying that the power of God, the power of the future has broken to this age, and that the reign of God has been inaugurated on the earth once again. The kingdom of God has come. The invasion of God's rule to reverse the effects of Eden, where, where, where man lost dominion, the invasion of God's rule to reverse the effects of Eden has now come upon the earth through the words and the works of Jesus Christ. In fact, to use the words of Jesus Christ, it's the, 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 the acts of Jesus are binding the strong man's house and plundering it. The strong man's house is Satan. Satan is the strong man. His strong, the strong man's house is Satan's domain. Plundering his goods. The goods of Satan were people. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom comes. It binds the strong man. It plunders his goods. So every miracle, every healing, every word spoken was binding the enemy. Every word spoken from Jesus... Binding the enemy. Every soul saved was plundering the house of Satan because it was the invasion of the future into the present. The future victory coming forward, that future time where death would be defeated, Satan would be thrown into the abyss, everyone would have whole bodies and be, be worshiping the Lord. That future invading the present, overlapping itself into the present so that here and there we taste pieces of it and parts of it through bursts of the power of God. So it was the invasion of the future victory of God into the present reality. You know, similarly with D-Day, the Nazis were, were bound at D-Day, but the war had not ended. Victory was assured, but it wasn't over. The war wasn't over. George Ladd, the great theologian, calls this the presence of the future. The kingdom of God is here, but it's still coming. So Jesus says, if I cast out demons, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is among you. But then he also teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come. Some folks call it the already, but not yet. The kingdom is here, but it's still coming. We are saved, we're being saved. There's this sense of already, but not yet. This is how Article 10 describes it. The kingdom of God, already present, but not yet fully realized, 
is in the exercise of God's sovereignty in the world toward the eventual redemption of all creation. The kingdom of God is an invasive power that plunders Satan's dark kingdom and regenerates and renovates through repentance and faith the lives of individuals rescued from that kingdom. It therefore inevitably establishes a new community of human life together under God. Oh, that is sweet. That is sweet. And we get to experience that. And I want us this morning to truly understand the significance of what that is talking about. So let's, let's look a little more specifically at what this new kingdom means for you and for me. What does this new kingdom mean for us? And I've got three different points I want to cover. First is that we are made citizens. We are made citizens. That's part of what the new kingdom means for us. Secondly, as citizens, we have benefits. And thirdly, as citizens, we have responsibilities or duties. So let's talk first about as, that we are made citizens. In fact, let's first address this question of citizenship. In other words, how are we made citizens in God's kingdom? And the simple answer is that we are, we are born into citizenship in God's kingdom. See, typically in the world, you know, you're a citizen of whatever country you were born into. I've got a brother-in-law from Chennai, India, born and raised there. So he is a citizen of India, but he immigrated to the United States. He married Kim's sister. He got his green card, and he had two sons in the United States because his sons were born in the United States. They are citizens of the United States because you are a citizen of wherever you are born. So we must be born into God's kingdom in order to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Remember, remember uh, the story in John of Nicodemus? We, we talked about this last year in the summer series last year. Nicodemus was this religious man. He was a Pharisee. In fact, in fact, he was more than just a Pharisee. He was a Sanhedrin, which was like the ruling elite back then in the day. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and he wants to talk to Jesus about what it means to be saved. And Nicodemus is there with his pedigree and his circumcision and his education and orthodoxy and well-positioned and affiliations, and, 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 and he, he had it all. I mean, this was quite a specimen of a religious man. But this is what Jesus says to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you be born again, You cannot see the kingdom of God. Being religious wasn't enough. Being traditional wasn't enough. Being raised in the right family wasn't enough. You had to be born not once, but born again. Because in order to get into the kingdom and be a citizen of the kingdom, you must be born into the kingdom. This is the way the statement of faith states it. Quote, we believe that those who have been saved by the grace of God through union with Christ by faith and through regeneration by the Holy Spirit enter the kingdom of God. You know what's so amazing about this? Is no one expected the kingdom to come this way. 
Nicodemus did not expect the kingdom to come this way. The Pharisees utterly dismissed Jesus because they were expecting not the kingdom to come in some secret way, but this triumphant Messiah that was going to come and lay a serious smackdown on his enemies, lay down some serious shock and awe that would let everybody know that the Messiah is here. But then Jesus comes and he's, he's talking about this secret. He's talking about this mystery of the kingdom and tells his disciples in Mark chapter 4, to you is given the mystery of the kingdom of God. And and the secret of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom is about how it arrived, that it was already, but not yet. That it wasn't going to be some kind of big triumphant return where everybody knew about it at one time, at least not at first. It was going to be the mustard seed in Matthew chapter 13 the smallest of seeds that's sown in the ground and grows over time so that it becomes the largest of the trees that the birds come and gather together into it. It was going to be the small leaven in Luke chapter 12 that's sown into the loaf and has its own power and grows and grows until it eventually leavens the whole loaf. And that's what they missed, the fact that the kingdom comes small. The kingdom comes through humility. The kingdom comes in ways they never expected it. It's part of the mystery of the kingdom, the secret of the kingdom, and the fact that it all starts with an invasion was something they completely missed. It all started with D-Day, the invasion of the kingdom through the words and works of Jesus Christ. And when the kingdom is received, that's when we become citizens of the kingdom. So Paul tells the Ephesians, so then you are no no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the other saints. So it's conversion that naturalizes us, meaning it's conversion that makes us or helps us to become citizens of the kingdom of God. So point number one is that we are made citizens. Point two, as citizens we have benefits. As citizens, we have benefits. Now, what does that mean, that we are citizens with benefits? I mean, that's not unusual that a citizen would have benefits. I I think of Paul. We just studied this in the Acts series. Remember Acts 22, Paul's arrested. Um, He's about to be flogged, and he pulls out the citizenship card, and he slaps it on the table, figuratively speaking, to stop the flogging, because as a Roman citizen, he had certain rights. He had certain benefits. In fact, later on, he appeals to Caesar, because as a Roman citizen, he had certain rights. There were benefits to being a citizen. Well, in God's kingdom, there are benefits to being a citizen as well. And I I love, I love the way the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith says this. Let me read this to you. It says, They, we, enter the kingdom of God and delight in the blessings of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the inward transformation that awakens a desire to glorify, trust, and obey God, and the prospect of the glory yet to be revealed. Listen, when I prayed this morning, I prayed because, I, because as I prayed to God, I said, 
Lord, this is so comprehensive, and our minds are so small. And we could just spend weeks talking about all the benefits that come to us as, as a result of being citizens of the kingdom. We could talk about justification. We could talk about forgiveness. We could talk about adoption. But I want to take some time and just hone in on what's pulled out in the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith because I, I love the way that the benefit is articulated as a delight that is sparked. We enter the kingdom of God and we delight in its blessings, it says, and then desires that are awakened. The inward transformation that awakens a desire to glorify God. So it's, it's summarized as a delight that is sparked and desires that are awakened. In other words, when someone is born into the kingdom, that means that God gives them something they cannot manufacture themselves. He gives them a new heart. But that, in that new heart, there's something installed. There's something that they didn't have before, and that, that new heart comes with desires embedded in it, desires for God, desires that delight in God. God implanted it in them. And don't get intimidated by that word. That's just a theological word for saying they are God-installed desires. They're, they're factory-installed at regeneration, at the new birth. In fact, Piper says, in the new birth, our dead, stony boredom with Christ is replaced by a heart that senses the worth of Jesus. Therefore, we begin to delight in Jesus because we have a heart that senses the worth of Jesus. So that citizenship creates desires. That conversion creates desires. Conversion creates affections. In other words, it's not just about a new way of thinking. It's about new desires that are in our heart. It's about a new way of loving. It's how we know that we're genuinely converted. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm really growing to love the South, but uh, one of the biggest challenges of being down here is, I mean, have you noticed everyone's a Christian? I mean, the mailman, the woman, Christian, everybody in Publix is a Christian. Everybody has a fish on the back of their car, Christians, even the pets, all converted, all Christians. Which down in the South basically means I was raised in the church and I know how to speak Jesus. I know, how, I know the language. I can work my way around. I can, talk, I can talk Jesus. But speaking Jesus has nothing to do with being a citizen of the kingdom. I mean, just because you've spent time in the United Kingdom and you've heard the language of the United Kingdom doesn't mean you're a citizen of the United Kingdom. Because there's a big difference between being a tourist and being a citizen. See, tourists have facts. Citizens have rights. Tourists have knowledge about a place. Citizens have experience in a place. Tourists have, have heard about a ruler. They've read about a ruler. Citizens live under their government, live under their ruler. And in God's kingdom, the best way to tell the difference between a tourist and a citizen 
is to examine them or to examine oneself on the level of desire. Because it's the desires of our heart that's the passport to tell our country of origin, to tell where were we really born. Are we born of this world or are we born of the kingdom? Are we citizens of this world or are we citizens of heaven? Our passport is the desires of our heart. I talked last week a little bit about my conversion. And one of the things I remember about my conversion is I remember that life after my conversion didn't look much different than life before my conversion. In other words, I was sinning in a lot of the same ways after I was converted that I was sinning before I was converted. But there was one dramatic difference, and that is, man, I started to feel bad. I started to feel horrible about the way I was sinning. So I was doing, on the outside, nothing looked different whatsoever, but all of a sudden, there was a conscience. There was conviction. There were things that were going on inside of me, and I found that my desires were changing so that eventually my behavior began to align with my desires. But it happened from the inside out. It was something God began. And here's the thing. It's how I knew something was different. Because if I would have looked at just my behavior, I would have been condemned. And I did feel condemned. But I knew, boy, you know, I, I don't understand it all. And I know I'm sinning in some of the same ways I was before. But I feel bad about it. There's something going on inside of me that is different. In fact, it's dramatically different. And now when I look back on it, I realize there was a conversion all the way down to my desires. There was a transformation of my affections. Let me talk to the parents for a second here. Parents, I want to appeal to you. Don't encourage virtual citizenship within your home. Virtual citizenship. You know, there can be a fear that arises in, in, in the hearts of parents, particularly of small children. We just want to get them down the road as quickly as possible. Get them baptized, because if I can baptize them, then I, that'll validate something to me. It'll relieve me of the burden of not knowing where they're going to go. And so we, we're so we want to be so quick to crown them with conversion. Don't encourage virtual citizenship. But make sure that you are going down to the level of desire as you seek to serve your children and evaluate where your children are. Do they desire Jesus? Do they grieve sin? Do they admire godliness more than being rich, more than being famous, more than people who are wealthy or popular? Do they desire godliness and admire godliness more than people who are popular? Do they want to hear from God's Word? Do they want to hear God's Word preached? The point I'm trying to make is those are the benefits of genuine citizenship. And we have to get beyond our fears in serving our children to make sure that we are discerning the fruits of genuine citizenship and not virtual citizenship. So, as citizens, we have benefits. And then lastly, as citizens, we have responsibilities. We have duties. You know, at the heart of sin is a kind of, is a kind of radical autonomy. You're not the boss of me. That's what we say to God. You're not the boss of me. No one's the boss of me. 
I don't want any laws. I don't want any authority, no government, no responsibility. But when the kingdom of God breaks into our life, God restores a ruler. The kingdom restores a ruler. And what the kingdom is, is it, it means that life is coming under God. And the kingdom is, 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 is where the future, life under God, life in the new heavens and new earth where we have a ruler, the future is breaking into the present. And we begin on this earth to experience the reality of life under God. The reality of a future place where there's a king, and, and we're trying to delight him, and we're trying to obey him. And all of that appears now and calls us to live under the ruler right here, right now. In fact, what's really fascinating, if you really want to send your brain in opposite directions, is our citizenship is already there in heaven. It's already there. It's, it's awaiting us. Paul, Paul says to the Philippians, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. So, here's the point that I'm trying to make. As citizens of a future kingdom, we have duties in the present as we live under the King. We are called to live now, keeping with, keeping intact with our future life, to live under the rule of God. So, Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. He tells the Romans, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. See, the bottom line is, if we have a king, he must reign over our choices. If we have a king, he must reign over the way that we talk, over the way that we think, over the things that we say. This week I was talking to another leader, and to, to my shame, I said something that was very unkind about another leader. Nobody in Four Oaks, if you're here as a leader, wasn't me. Said something very unkind to my shame. And next day, out of the blue, I just began thinking about that. Isn't that how it works so often? Is the Spirit of God is faithful. He doesn't come in and clobber you. He just begins to whisper. And so whispered in my soul was, yeah, boy, was that really pleasing to the king? Was that really reflecting the new kingdom? Was that really a reality consistent with being a citizen under his rule? And it got worse that day. And then yesterday, same way, to the point where I had to call this guy, and he was kind enough to call me back, and I had to confess to him that what I said was entirely inappropriate. It was unloving. It was unkind. It did not portray that other person in love. And I was able to repent to God of that and repent or confess that to my friend as well. Because I have a king. You have a king. He must reign over our choices. We are called to live obedient to his rule. 
Paul tells the Ephesians, everyone who is sexually immoral or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. If we have a king, he reigns over our choices. If we have a king, he's even, he's even in the bedroom. See, Americans are so intent in keeping the government out of the bedroom, this king says, no, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about that. Let's talk about who you're sleeping with and not married. I want to talk about that, the king says. Let's talk about why you deleted that history from your computer. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about why, why you buy stuff that you don't really need. Let's, I want to talk about that as well. Because he's our king. And because he loves us. He takes us there. But, but this kingdom is not simply a maid service that kind of comes in and cleans the inside of the house. What ultimately this king does is he, he flips our direction. He, he takes us from moving in one direction, he flips us around so that we're aimed in a completely other direction. He changes how we orient our aim, where ultimately we desire to be like the king who emptied himself and humbled himself. We want to be like the king who came as one who wrapped a towel around himself and served. We want to be like the king who does good and did good to others. This is the way the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith reads or says it. Recognizing whose created order this is, and because we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, doing good to all, especially to those who belong to the household of God. Listen, here's some wonderful news this morning. When, when you're making a meal for someone that's ill, you are living under the rule of God and making a statement about the kingdom of God. When you're blocking out a Saturday morning to help somebody move who's moving in from out of town to be involved in this church, you are making a statement about the king. When you're serving the poor in the soup kitchen, when you're involved, as some of you are in in crisis pregnancy work, thank you for doing that. You're making a statement. You're living under the king in the kingdom. As J. Johannesson is down at Florida State University, open-air preaching of the gospel, he's making a statement about the king and living under the king in his kingdom. As, as Isaac Montilla is using his chiropractic practice to not only care for the body, but care for the soul as well. Same thing. He's recognizing there is a king. I live in his kingdom. You are serving the king. They are serving the king and representing the kingdom. And as the gospel is received by people, the seed of that kingdom grows more and more. The mustard seed gets bigger. The leaven ends up leavening the whole loaf. Now, I know we hear these things and we think, well, wait a minute, you know, Dave, on my best days, I am, I, I'm not going to be able to do all that. I'm going to fail. I'm going to not keep the law. I'm going to be a poor ambassador for this kingdom. And the good news for us this morning is that because the king came to earth and because the king sacrificed his life, we have the forgiveness that we need for the times that we don't obey the king. We can live free from the guilt that we can have at times because we fall short of obeying his law. Because ultimately it starts with this whole idea that the king loves us. He loves you. And he's come after you because he loves you. 
In fact, that's not all. When our king died and rose on the third day, he made available the power of the age to come. He brought it forward into this world and set it down into our life, set it down in our soul. The power of the age to come through the Holy Spirit. The very power that will keep us in heaven, keep us in our new bodies, that will keep us forever, that will fuel our joy in heaven, that power has broken into this world and fills our life as we call upon His name. Paul tells the Corinthians, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. See, we're not the allies on D-Day approaching Normandy with no weapons, no air support from God. No, no, no. We're the allied forces after the invasion. After the invasion has already taken place, winning back enemy territory as, as the advance takes place because of the overwhelming power behind us and the overwhelming power above us, and the overwhelming power within us. Because we have a king who loves us. Because we have a king who died for us. Because we have a king who makes the powers of the future available to us right now in the present. Let's pray.